convention and we're having a big uh, one week celebration of her 60th birthday. So she told me this morning as she was getting ready for work, she said, you have to buy new blue jeans. And I said, why? I've got lots of blue jeans. She said, all of your blue jeans are old and baggy and terrible and covered with paint and ripped. And she said, you cannot take those old blue jeans. You've got to buy new blue jeans. So I teased her and she got angry. And so this morning I bought new blue jeans. So I'm going to, she hasn't seen them yet. She hasn't come home from work. You ready? Yeah, yeah. Woohoo! <laughs> <laughs> if I could whistle, I would. <laughs> so I'm, I'm feeling very sexy in my clothes. <laughs> this is the uh, first new blue jeans I've bought in so many decades I can't remember. Because I buy, I buy used ones. I get them for $5. Old ones. Oh. And I love them. You know? Well, you're looking very sexy. I have to say, I love the blue jeans and the shirts, all working. <laughs> 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 it's working, Howard. Yeah. Uh, my, my wife's comment to me is when I get dressed, when we're going out, she said, uh, you look like a homeless person. Is that the look you're going for? <laughs> look, you know, I have, to, I, I have to tell you a secret. I've interviewed many, many people, but some people just kind of squeeze inside my heart a little bigger than the others. And there's two of you, you're both men and you're both sort of older men, you and Garnet Schulhauser have sort of squeezed inside there a little bit bigger. Right. <laughs> I, I fall in love with everybody, but then some just yeah. sort of linger a little longer. And Garnet, I'm actually interviewing him again, will be like the fourth time he's been on the show next week. He was a corporate lawyer for 40 years and a homeless man stopped him in the street and started beaming this bright blue, like a beautiful blue eyes, loving, unconditional loving energy into him, you know, just, and Garnet, who was conservative Catholic corporate lawyer and not really spiritual because he was a very, you know, like diplomatic scientific man, a very, you know, logical yeah. man. Um, he was just, he said he was like stopped like a deer in the headlight and uh, this unconditional love was just coming out of this homeless man's eyes and this homeless huh. man said to him, why are you here? And then he disappeared. <laughs> and, wow. then, and then Garnet's like, oh my God, you know, like, and then he, he tries to find this homeless man and he can't. So he goes back the next day to the same place and he looks everywhere and he can't find him. And he, so he gives up. And then he spots him sitting on a bench in a park, over, you know, across the street. So he goes over and he sits down and he starts having this conversation with this homeless man. And um, he said, what, why, did, why did you do that to me yesterday? Like, who are you? And the conversation unfolds and the homeless man says, well, I'm a soul just like you. And uh, I've got some things to share with you if you... Um, if you would listen and Garnet says, well, why would I listen to someone like you? You're filthy and you smell like a dead fish. <laughs> and the no. homeless man says, well, you could sit here and have a conversation with me or you could go back to your endless emails on your computer and try to work out, you know, what you're doing there that, you know, in your office with all your emails. Anyway, it was a beautiful conversation that unfolded. And the homeless man turns out to be his spirit guide who had manifested in physical form. Ah. And then um, their relationship yep. continues today. 
but in his astral body, he spoke to him physically a few times and then he stopped appearing as a physical homeless man and just spoke to him in his thoughts. And I said to Garnet, how did you know it was him speaking to you? And he goes, oh, because I recognised his voice. And I said, oh, okay, so you could hear his voice. He goes, oh, yeah, yep. very clearly. And then he said that he would take him out of his body at night and fly him around the cosmos and he would... Um, He's written four books and his fourth has just been released. And his, his adventures are just extraordinary, extraordinary, unbelievably extraordinary. Anyway, I said to him recently, Albert is the name of the homeless man. I said to him, does your spirit guide Albert still appear as the homeless man when you see him in astral form? And he says, oh, absolutely. He just maintains that persona that identity always showing up as the smelly ugly unwashed homeless man and i find it such a cosmic joke because it kind of it kind of reminds us to not get too caught up in our appearance if you know what i mean like like that it's kind of a bit of a joke too between him and and, the, and, and, his, and his guide, Albert, that he would show up as a homeless man and unwavering, always look like he could appear as anything, right? But he appears as a homeless right, man. Right. Especially, I think, um, I think attorneys are very uh, conscious about appearance and presentation. You know, they always, you know, they're, that, that's really a big thing to attorneys. They judge people that way. So for him to appear as someone that he would have nothing to do with, you know. Exactly. Um, Exactly. And that was the sort of the cosmic joke between him and his guide, you know, because his guide was like his, his best mate, you know, his buddy and, you know, like in spirit that is, is, is appearing as this homeless man. But, you know, since then that happened uh, in 2010, I think, or seven, it happened a while ago, like 10 years ago. And so since then, he's since quit the corporate, you know, about a year after that, he quit the um, corporate work and retired uh, he's in his 60s now he was in his late 50s then and and uh and he was guided to write these books and and like you he's written four books and and albert turns up and 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 guides him to write all this stuff down and he said you know you're my messenger on earth and you're going to write what i'm going to show you and and so that's his mission now is to spread you know the message that he's shown to through the homeless man, but he never he never appears as an angel or as Jesus or as any you know sort of divine entity. He appears as the homeless man, which I just yeah. find hilarious. Yeah, yeah, yeah. God's got a great sense of humor. People right. don't appreciate how funny God is, you know. And Exhibit A and God's sense of humor is us, because <laughs> we're really funny. You know, whether we appreciate it or not, we're hysterically funny. I know. I always believe my life's like this hilarious sitcom that my guides are sitting back eating popcorn, watching and just laughing hysterically at. (laughs) Especially some of the concepts that we come up with. I can hear them laughing, you know, sometimes when people say things, especially about God and who they perceive God to be or what or how, you know. I'll just hear my guides laughing and just say, you guys are just too funny. Like, this yeah. you guys are just too funny. Well, you know, I, 
whenever I tell my story, I always emphasize that Jesus has this wonderful sense of humor. And the thing, one of the things that I really liked about him is he thought I was really, really funny. And nobody in my life ever thought I was that funny. You know, I, I do have a dry sense of humor. And most of the time it, you know, goes kerplunk on the floor. And people look at me like, you know, what are you trying to say? Are you serious? You know, what are you talking about? And Jesus like totally gets me. You know, he, he laughed a lot at me, with me, you know, yeah. through me, for me, you know. Um, but listen, I, I, um, let me let me uh, let me get let me get this show on the road, and um... you got to accentuate the positive. You're listening to Karen Swain, teacher of deliberate creation, accentuating the positive, showing you a way to a better life. Accentuating the positive, it's not just bad, it's sanity. Who in their right mind would accentuate anything else? I can tell you angel stories. Yeah, that's what I want. I want lots of angel stories. I want lots of angel stories. Let me do the intro. Yep. <laughs> because we're on, we're recording. Hello and welcome to Accentuate the Positive with Karen Swain. So wonderful to be with you again. I have the fabulous and wonderful Reverend Howard Storm back on the show. I just love Howard. I was just telling Howard before that there's just a couple of guests that really get inside my heart and stay there. I have to say, everyone I speak to gets inside my heart. I fall in love with everybody, but a couple of them just linger a little longer and Howard is one of them. Welcome back to the show, Howard. Thank you. Great to be with you, Karen. So I've put it out on my little Inner Sanctum group for people to join. So some people might jump online a bit later. So we'll wait and see if that happens. I'm not sure if anyone's going to turn up. But um, we had a great conversation last time. But gee, boy, did I have some interesting YouTube um, posts under our conversation, Howard. Oh. <laughs> I had Hopefully some... all good. No, not at all. There's only two, no. there's, there's two YouTubes that I've done or two shows that I've done on YouTube or put it on YouTube that have had the most amount of uh, critical thoughts. A and that was uh, Nancy a couple of years ago, an atheist who went to heaven and, um, and then you. <laughs> so I've had some really huh. interesting comments about how, um, well, one person was really upset because they said that I was leading you astray and making you uh, believe in my new age principles and, um, and that I'm not a very good Christian. Yeah. And, well, I'm uh, sorry about that. People were really upset that I was leading you astray. And um, I don't know, look, a lot, of, a lot of passages from the Bible were posted about false prophets and the devil and all that sort of stuff. But, you know, I don't mind. People kind of do that. People kind of do that. But it's kind of interesting how our conversation evoked so much, so much um, voice, so much voice. Yeah. But uh, so we might address a bit of that a bit later because today, last time we spoke, your story is so extensive. And, um, of course, if anyone doesn't know Howard's story, it is all over the internet. He's even been on Oprah and Don, is it not Donahue? What are those American? 
Bill Donahue and Donahue and uh, Sally Jesse Raphael and yeah. all kinds of places. You've been everywhere, man. And uh, so your story is all over the internet about how you left your body after this terrible illness, and we explored it last time on the show. But what we didn't get to explore, and the angels actually asked me specifically to spread their message, was the mm -hmm. angelic realm. So when you were in this um, other realm with Jesus, because you went, you left your body and you went and hung out with Jesus, you saw a lot of angels there or you spoke to a lot of angels. So I wanted to give the voice to the angels today and we're going to talk angel stories and angels and it's all about the angels today. So shall we start with right. who, who's the first angel that you encountered? What did they look like? What did they, what did they say to you? Well, I've got my cup of tea here. Um, Jesus took me up to an area outside of heaven. We weren't in heaven at this time. We're outside it. And he wanted to give me a life review. And he said he had some people that he wanted me to meet. And so, excuse me, with my wife calling me, I didn't silence my phone. You know what? I haven't, I haven't silenced my phone too. And it's over yeah, there. Hi, dear. I'm doing an interview right now. What? I'll just fix my hair. What? Right. Say hi. Yeah. Hi from Australia. All right. So um, I'm outside of heaven, near to heaven, but not in it with Jesus. And he said that he had some people he wanted me to meet. And he made musical tones. And the closest that I've ever found to that um, is a set of chimes wind chimes that my sister has and they're very very big they're like four and five feet long and they're um, large in diameter like about you know two or three inches and they make these deep to deep tones and um wow they really get to me because they uh, are like the voice of jesus when he was calling out to the angels and the interesting thing is is that i've had some people that are spiritual not all my friends are spiritual but the ones that are spiritual They'll be over at my house. We'll be sitting in the room. The wind chimes are outside of this room. No, they'll all of a sudden just stop and they go, what's that? The wind chimes. And they go, I've never heard anything like that. I need to, I need to have, I need to have that. And I mean, I mean, people that are spiritual totally connect to these wind chimes. <laughs> um, and it was really cool because my sister had them and I was at her house and I heard them. And I said, I have to have, where can I buy those chimes? And she said, I don't know. They were a gift to me. And then at my birthday, after that visit, um, they came in the mail and she sent them to me. She said, I knew they were really meaningful to you. So, you, so they're from my sister, which makes them also special. So they're five foot long, did you say? Three and five? Five, five and four feet long. Yeah. And they're very wow. big. They're, they're like, um, I think they sell for um, about 360 or 70 dollars in the US and the tone is just amazing. That'd be deep and penetrating. I used to have some that were about two to three feet long and I yeah. had them outside my front door and there was a block of flats next door and I, I heard someone yell out, shut up one day because they were blowing in the wind and then the <laughs> next day they disappeared. Oh, great. The only <laughs> right. other thing that I've ever heard close to it was um, in um, some churches, 
they have bell choirs, and sometimes the bell choirs will have a set of chimes that they might play, and the chimes that they play are also similar. And the interesting thing about the tone is that it's not the tone when the chime is struck, it's the tone after it's struck, mm. which lingers for a long, with good chimes, they linger for a long time. That's the tone. So I, I wish I could edit out the striking part because when Jesus spoke, he wasn't striking a chime, he was just making this tone wow. and it just came out of him and, and built and then resonated. And um, so that's how he talked to the angels. I, I obviously didn't understand a word of it, but um, heaven has a very special place for music. And uh, one of the things that we... Um, are going to do when we go to heaven is we're going to be part of that um, heavenly tonal quality because it's uh, that that whole tonal system is actually the creation of the world. The world is being created by that tone. Um, and well, a lot we were, of if yeah, we were more sophisticated, we could actually um, you know speak into the creation, but. That's a level of sophistication we're not quite ready yet for. But I think some, I think some musicians, like you know, a person like Bach or something, I think they, uh, they were right on the edge of it. Well, a lot of sound healers today speak of this. You know, they, they speak of the tones, like they, um, the Sanskrit, you know, talk about the Om or the, mm -hmm. the R or the Who or the He. You know, they. They speak in tones. It's like their it's like their verbiage. Their language is the tones. Yeah. Um, I, I don't know if we can make those tones with our human instrument or even with our physical instruments, but we can try. Yes. <laughs> well, the reason why I think it's important was um, we're talking about angels, and that was my introduction was the angels is that Time. their language their their language amongst themselves is tones. Um, and they came, and there was a group of them that um, formed a semicircle around us, and they were um, so bright at first, and I was so um, unfamiliar with that brightness. I'm, I'm a little reluctant to call it light because it, it looks like light, but it's not like light we know in this world. You know, if I took my uh, lamp that's on overhead and shined it in my eyes, it would uh, be somewhat painful. I mean, it, would be, it wouldn't, wouldn't be very comfortable to do that. Mm -hmm. um, their light is um, never painful. It's, it, the, more, the, more you, the more you look into it, the more love and the, and the more you're, you're filled with their presence by that light. So it's, it's like light, but it's not light. Mm -hmm. um, so they they came like that, and uh, I I asked just generally, who are they? And I was told by them that they had all been with me all of my life. Um, Francis uses the term team a lot. Yeah, and um, that has now become. Um, I have to give her uh, an tribute for this, um, that's become part of my vocabulary. They okay. didn't use the word team, but they made it very clear to me that they were my team. That was your, your team, yeah. 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 And uh, 
they told me that some of them had been with me all along and some had come and gone and had had some other responsibilities they had to attend to but i have so one one of the natures of our angels is that we all have a team it's not you know there's this idea we have a guardian angel singular well that's inaccurate we have guardian angels and it's a team yeah um i was fascinated with trying to see into their light and i came to notice that each one was different and that there were lots and lots of colors in that white light and then i came to realize that there were colors that i was completely unfamiliar with and of course don't have any words to describe them because they're not part of our vocabulary and i became really fascinated with the, um, all the colors that made up the white light and um and changing and glowing and they were, and they were um radiant beautiful and as they um, interacted with me like um different colors would become more intense and um excited if you will and um others became more dormant and it it was um this wonderful wonderful light show um nothing in this world comparable i um love fireworks because it vaguely resembles but it dove definitely reminds me of being with the angels i especially like the light the fireworks when they set off you know a whole bunch at one time um because in a as close as i can get to it in this world it was kind of like what they were like but they weren't explosions of like they were they were continuous fireworks that didn't they didn't go off and then diminish they would they were just fireworks all the time ever changing and ever um never beautiful with all kinds of um colors happening in them it was just so it, i was just totally fixated by them and uh i said to them who are you you know they they told me that they were you know my angels and um that they've been with me and all that and i said well who are you because i knew that i must have known some i mean i i knew that some of them knew me wait wait too well i mean you know there's just a sense of familiarity and they said we'll show you who we are and all of a sudden i had a thought i said don't do that please don't do that and they said why and i said i hate people i never want to see people again as long as i live now keep in mind i just come from this like horrible hellish experience yeah, i was yeah. i was pretty disillusioned with the human race and here i am amongst these absolutely glorious wonderful creatures and they're going to turn it down for me like no thank you you know turn it up don't turn it down you know so, i so when they so, said so i'll show you who we are they were going to appear as like a physical form yes and you said no, uh -uh. no. Mm -hmm. um and i now know because of many experiences i've had with angels um mm -hmm. they choose to appear to us um as they feel appropriate to the occasion mm -hmm. and so i've seen angels in all kinds of appearances and i've i've actually seen them change appearance um in front of me so they um you know um matter and energy to them is 
um, like child's play. You know, they can do, they can do anything. There, I mean, I, from my sense is that their natural state as spiritual beings is a type of um, incredible energy. Um, but they can transform that and appear to be just like a regular human being. And of course, um, I've had experiences with angels that I didn't realize they were angels until afterwards. Mm -hmm. um, and went, wait a minute, that doesn't make any sense. That couldn't possibly be, it couldn't possibly be, you know, it, it has to be an angel. But anyhow. I remember, oh, we were talking about the homeless man before. I remember, I remember a, a friend of mine had a birthday party recently and uh, she said, you simply have to meet my friend, you know, another healer. She's just like you, beautiful woman whose name escapes me in this minute. And we were talking and swapping stories and she said she saw this homeless man in the street sort of like cruising along really slowly head bowed and she went up to sort of just give him some love just to help him just to say are you okay is there anything i can do and he looked up at her like this and he straightened up and he like completely changed his posture and stood straight up and then he pulled out of his pocket a card and on the card was an angel <laughs> and then and then she looked at the card and she looked up into his eyes and his eyes were beaming and then he put the card back in his pocket and he went back into uh, like that and uh, kept walking and she was just like, oh, my God, I think I just met an angel. <laughs> yeah. Isn't that beautiful? I love that. Sorry, yes. Yeah, they so can they, appear. Um, yeah. They, yep. So the, the first thing they wanted to do was they wanted to uh, put me at ease because I was still in a state of awe, okay. you know, just completely overwhelmed by them. So we were, we were just sort of um, chatting back and forth. Um, and it was really clear to me that they were my allies, you know, that I, I didn't have any worries with them. You know, they weren't there to um, condemn me or, you know, judge me or um, do anything. And Jesus said to me, they want, to show you your life oh and i was like oh great and of course what i was thinking was i get to be the center of attention of all these wonderful people this i mean this is like really feeding my my desire for attention my ego it's like you know i mean all these beautiful beings are all here just for me and they want to they want to show me my life this is going to be great you know i'm a star you know, I've won the prize, you know. Um, and so we started off, and what they were doing, and, and they did this, wasn't my memory. And when we started off, of course, these were things that I couldn't possibly remember because we started off with my birth, which I <laughs> clearly don't remember. Um, and they were projecting it as a holographic projection in the midst of us, and they would include um, appropriate props, and, but not necessarily backgrounds and not necessarily anything that was not uh, important to the story. So a bit like a stage. You know, so, uh, what, like a play, like when you see an actor on a stage. Exactly, like, exactly. exactly. Maybe a bed like a stage. And a desk, yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah, but the but a back backdrop would usually just be a big blank, you know. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And um, what I saw 
was my mother and father so happy? Because um, they had had two daughters um, prior to me, and they had been hoping for a son. Of course, in those days, in 1946, they didn't um, have sonograms or anything, so they were delighted that they had a healthy boy. The other thing that they were happy about, my um, mother and father's uh, blood was incompatible. I can't, I can't remember technically. My mother told me this. And they weren't supposed to be able to have children. And they had been warned that um, they wouldn't have children. So they'd had two daughters, and the doctor said, well, it's very unlikely you're going to have um, a successful pregnancy. Mm-hmm. And then they had me, and I came out big and healthy. And then um, to conclude that theme, they tried for a fourth one, and it, it, it was a miscarriage. It didn't make it. So that was the, uh, the RH negative, RH positive stuff. I don't remember what it was. But anyway, so they were so they were thrilled. They had a boy, and they had a healthy boy, and they um, had been told that they wouldn't um, shouldn't expect to have um, the child that turned out to me. So my parents were so happy. Um, they were crying and like watching this, and I'm crying because you know my mother was. Um, much younger than I'd ever known her to be, and she was so beautiful. And my father was some pretty good-looking guy. He had just gotten back from the uh, World War II, the Pacific, and so he wasn't overweight yet. You know, he still had his hair and things. And you know, when um, noted, that's really neat. And they um, and and they there were just like all these images that they kept showing me of my um, family playing with me and my two sisters one was four years older one was two years older they were they thought i was like a, a doll you know i mean as in a toy you know yeah. and so they they played with me and uh would like wipe the uh, snot from my nose and the drool from my lips and um you know they really liked having a little brother and it was just like all this happiness and it was just unbelievable i i knew that my sisters um really loved me and i loved them but to see how much uh, joy that I brought into life was so wonderful. And um, I think about happiness and good and good times. And eventually um, I began to grow up. And what happened, and I want to make a, uh, an explanation for why this happened. Um, my father was driven to make it economically he wanted he wanted uh he wanted to be successful so he was starting to work a lot i'm talking about 10 12 hour days mm-hmm. he was a salesman and uh he got a promotion when i was uh, about 12 years old or so from being assistant sales manager at general mills corporation florida division to manager of you know uh, general mills florida division so now he had like a dozen people under him mm-hmm. and it completely changed my dad. Um, now he's putting in like, you know, I mean, minimally 12 hour days, mm. um, working on working either at the office or on the phone on the weekends. Um, I'm completely obsessed with his work and the tension was turning him into a very, very um, difficult person who, just couldn't tolerate any any um, any kind of things that um, upset him and the family. So we went from like during those early years, we went from um, 
playing um, softball out in the street. In those days, there wasn't much traffic. Mm -hmm. And so we used the street as a playground. Mm. And, you know, I always remember every once in a while, somebody would yell, car, yeah. you know, and we'd all, we'd all uh, you know, evacuate the street to the sidewalk and the car would go by and we'd all go back up there and um, set, set the bases back up, which was, you know, something to indicate the bases and we'd go back to playing baseball. And we had great fun with my dad going to the beach and swimming with my dad. He was a terrible swimmer. He hardly swim at all. We used to uh, love swimming around him because he couldn't keep up with us. And I was just, everything was fun and beautiful. And then as he became more obsessed with his work, um, more crabby, more grouchy, mm. um, and ha having been in the military, um, he brought a lot, he wanted to, he wanted the household to run like a military operation. Mm -hmm. I mean, he gave orders and our, we were supposed to stand up straight and say, yes or no, sir. You know, um, he, he wanted to be ultra, ultra strict. He was an officer in the Navy and uh, he wanted to run the household like a Navy officer. And you know, with um, three rambunctious teenagers, this was not going well. And the angels were showing me how, how he wanted a great dad. He wanted to be a great provider. He mm -hmm. wanted, to show his love that way, and he wanted us to love it, love him. Instead, he was alienating us. Mm -hmm. And my mother, being the obedient uh, old world wife that she had been raised to be, because her parents were immigrants, so she was, although she was raised in the U.S., she was old school, you know, sort of 19th century kind of mom. Um, she just tried to meet him. Oh, he doesn't mean it. He loves you. You know, don't be mad at your dad. He's your dad. You know, you should treat him with respect. You know, um, and the angels are showing me things from different people's perspective, including seeing and feeling their hearts. Now, it's really hard for me to talk about because I was learning to hate my father because mm -hmm. I thought he was like the worst father in the world. Mm -hmm. And he definitely was um, doing a very bad job <laughs> of relating to his children as children, but he, w he was doing the best that he could. Yeah. And he'd come from an extremely dysfunctional alcoholic family, yeah. which was just chaos. Mm -hmm. I asked my dad one time, I said, what do you remember about your child? And he said, all I remember about my child is being sent out by my mother and going around to the, all the jails that I could go to to try and find my grandfather because he was always in the drunk tank. Uh -huh. And I'd go find him and um, try and bring him home. Right. That's what I he remembers about his childhood. Yeah. Um, anyways, the point is the angels were trying to break this all down with love and compassion and understanding. No blame, no shame, no guilt. But I'm feeling lots and lots of conflicting emotions because they're showing me with compassion and understanding things that I, I'm 38 years old at this time and I had never understood any of this. I always thought that by the luck of the draw, I'd gotten the worst father in the world, you know, and, and couldn't understand why my, my, my mother would tolerate him because she was so sweet and gentle. And the angels were um, showing me. And then as my teenage years developed, what I saw was that I became 
a participant in the uh, complete breakdown of my father. I mean, I, I started to become defiant and rebellious and angry. And as a result of that, um, for, to give you a concrete example, when I was 15 years old, I ran away from home, mm-hmm. went to New York City, and I lived there for four months wow. with an older woman. Um, wow. I mean, that's, that's how I felt about my home. <laughs> you know, yeah. um, mm-hmm. the only reason why I came home was uh, my, my woman friend had thrown me out and I was um, <laughs> destitute. And okay. um, I, I, I ran out of money and didn't have any place to live. And I was like, you know, um, I was going down and I called my mom and said, come and get me, mom. <laughs> I want to come home. <laughs> um, but anyway, so it was quite an adventure. Um, for a 15 year old. Anyhow, my mother um, was a nurse, but what she really wanted to be in life was an artist. So she, I did my first oil painting under my mother's um, watchful care at the age of nine, which I still have. Oh, it's wow. a painting of a rocket ship. And uh, <laughs> she, the angels showed me my mother's love from me, which I knew, but it was um, it was a crazy, unconditional love. My my mother basically never disciplined me, spoiled me. I mean, you know, when when I was fourteen years fourteen years old and started stealing her cigarettes, you know, she started I. No, and I said, good, because I hate your cigarettes. She smoked menthol cigarettes, and I wanted, I wanted you know, non-mentholated cigarettes. So, I mean, you know, when, when, um, when I wanted beer, I'm, I'm, this is a really good woman, but I'm talking about, you know, 14, 15 years old. She, she would buy me beer, give me beers, because I wanted them. I mean, just no, no restraint, no bounds on, on her. She couldn't say no to me. And then... Uh, one of the scenes that they showed me was um, my mother always always a cup of co- always a cold cup of coffee in her hand. Cold. I, mean, yeah. she, I don't know how much coffee she drank during the day. Tons of coffee, and it was always cold with lots of cream and sugar. And uh, uh. coffee in her hand, and a cigarette in the other hand. And we're sitting at the table, and I'm smoking, and I'm 15 years old. And she says to me, "Why can't you just get along with your dad? Just get along with him." And I told her, I said, I'll never get along with him. I hate him. And what the angels were showing me was is that I was fully as much a participant in the breakdown of our relationship as he was. You know, he's, look, he's looking for love. He's looking for um, military control over his family, which is, um, my father had no idea how out of control he was. I mean, he didn't know what was going on. He had no idea what my sisters and I were doing. We were wild. Um, and if you use your imagination to define wild, you're on target. We were, yes, we were that wild. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, the angels are watching over this whole mess. And they're, so, they're, they're letting me know how sad they are. You know, and they're trying. They're trying to. They try to intervene and try to rectify things. Like I'll give you uh, specific examples. 
when my sisters went out on their wild dates, they were mm -hmm. dating a lot of sailors. Mm -hmm. Okay, you may read between the lines. <laughs> they would take me along because... If Men cooped up in a ship together without female contact and then they hit the shore. That's all you need to know. <laughs> yeah, you got it. But, but good-looking young men. Yeah. I mean, these are, these are you know, um, full of hormones. Yeah. And uh, so my sisters would, would take me along on these dates. And if things got a little out of hand, like beyond where they were willing to go, uh -huh. which I don't know the details of that, and I don't want to know because of my sisters, you know, but whatever, whatever that meant, one thing, you know, because they'd always disappear into back bedrooms and things, but eventually they'd come out and say, brother, time to take me home. Of course, they were too drunk to drive. So um, I've always had a capacity to hold my uh, alcohol. So anyways, um, I'm 14 years old, 15 years old, 16 years old, and I'd drive, yeah. I'd drive everybody home. And the angel showed me how only by their intervention did we make it home because I drove like a maniac. Absolutely. I didn't have a license. I'd never had any driver's training, you know, and, and I just, I just go like, um, so we say in the U.S. as a bat out of hell, and, um, and the angels, the angels were showing me they were they were actually handling the the car for me because they really didn't want us to um, to die, get destroyed, you know. Um, so they they intervene and we're oblivious to it, and they're showing this all to me. And then um, as my life progressed, I became more and more alienated from the angels from, I mean, I, I became an atheist. I, you know, um, and all of this is, um, all very, very upsetting to them. But as we're watching this, that never a word of, uh, chastisement, but they shared their feelings with me and it made me feel awful that I hurt them so much. And I've said in the past, and it's, um, it's a dramatic way to say it, but it was like it was sticking a knife in their hearts, like sticking a knife in the hearts of the angels and Jesus. I mean, I mean, it really, really hurt them. And I'm standing there watching me on things that I'd done in my life quite consciously, deliberately, you know, proudly, you know, hurting these people that really loved me and had done nothing but try and protect me from my worst instincts and my, and my worst actions. It was. Um, it was very disturbing to me through that whole life review. The one thing it's very, very simple that I was created to love and care for um, the people around me, my mom, my dad, my sisters, you know, the, my friends on the street and at school, that's what I was created to do. Mm -hmm. And instead I withdrew emotionally from everybody. Mm -hmm. and was became more and more, um, I am going to be a great artist and nobody's going to stop me. And that became the direction of my life up until my um, near-death experience at the age of 38. So um, I had completely failed the purpose for which I was created. Mm -hmm. And it was horrible. The, just the one it's kind of funny in a sad sort of way is that in my career as a 
professor at a university and as an artist and all that, I won honors and prizes and things like that. And when we get when we would get to those periods in my life, because this was all flowing chronologically, they would skip over those things. And I'd say, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. You just skipped it. I just had a big one man show, you know. I got to work in I got three pieces in a museum. I, you know, I won an award. I won a prize. I got I was named Kentucky Artist of the Year and got a big cash prize at a big banquet down in Louisville. And, you know, and I said, these things are not important here. What we want you to see is this. And they'd show me something that I had absolutely forgotten until they reminded me of it, of how I had uh, blown off a student who had come to me because his heart was broken, because his girlfriend had dumped him. And I'm sitting there thinking, you know, nobody pays me enough to listen to this horse shit. You know, I'm like, you know, oh, this wow. kid, you know, this beautiful young man, you know, it's like who thinks I'm his friend. Because, yeah. you know, I knew, how to, I knew how to act like, you know, oh, Mr. Wonderful, Mr. You know, you know, I'm Mr. Um, everybody's buddy. Okay. But I, I wasn't. I didn't, I didn't care about them at all. Okay. You know? Yeah. And so that that's what uh, the angels had to show me. And it was um, many times as my life proceeded, I said, I've seen enough of this. I don't want to see anyone. They said, no, it's really important that you see what your life was about. But the, the uh, I've said this before, but I want to repeat it one last time and I'll stop with this, is that we didn't just see it. I felt it and I felt it from other people's expressions. That young man who I referred to who was talking about his heart being broken, his name was Homer. And he was a really sweet young man, and he didn't have anybody to talk to in the whole world about his broken heart. And he came to his beloved art professor, his painting teacher, mm-hmm. and poured out his heart. And I'm sitting there thinking, oh, man, how long is this drivel going to go on? i got to get out of here. I can't take any more of this. I'm going to have no sympathy for him whatsoever. He was wasting my precious time. Did he know that you felt like that? Or did he think that he'd had a great conversation with his art teacher? I think he was so wrapped up emotionally. I mean, he was weeping. I mean, he was bawling in my office. I think he was so wrapped up that he was kind of unaware of my reaction. But you know what? I, I suspect that on some deeper spiritual level, he he knew that he wasn't getting anywhere with me. So when you were witnessing this, I'm just getting into the details. When you were witnessing this, did you not feel how he felt about you? Like you said that you could feel their their perspective. Like did you feel? Oh yeah, he he came to me because he thought he thought I was his only real friend in the whole world, and but, I was older and wiser. But at the know? time, he was sort of, you know, bawling and and telling you his problems. No, my sense was he was just completely. He didn't know that you didn't care, though. But he didn't know that you didn't care, right? Okay, yeah. But what was important for you was to see that how you didn't care. Yeah. 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 Oh, so many things that you've said because a lot of people have said that about near-death experiences that they get to experience um, how it lands. You know, how your thoughts, how your being, what you say, how it all lands on the other person. And so that's why I'm asking, you know, maybe he didn't hear or feel your thoughts because he was too wrapped up in his own emotion, yeah. which is kind of a good thing. Um, and, but a lot of people do feel other people's thoughts, you know. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. But um, be it negative or positive. And uh, 
So sometimes words are not needed. You can just emulate love or emulate hate and it'll land on the other person. Absolutely. Mm. But one of the points that I was trying to make with that story about my life review was that we think the angels are all um, sugar and spice and everything nice, but they value truth. They value honesty. And of course they value love. And they, you know, gifts from the angels can be painful for us. Yeah. It's not, it's not all um, sweetness and light. It can be, you know, it can be um, hard truths that we have to learn. But one of the things that I asked them, I said, well, if you watched over me, yeah. um, some bad things have happened to me. Yeah. I said, well, we don't, we've never wanted anything bad to happen to you but we have to let you experience the consequences of your actions now and again. They said most of the bad things that were about to happen to you, we prevented from happening, but we have to let some of that get through once in a while in the hopes that you're going to learn something from it. And I asked them, I said, did I learn? And they said, sometimes you didn't, sometimes you didn't, you know, um, but they, if the angels were not intervening in our lives, very few of us would make it into adolescence, you know. Yes, we really would. You know, I told you about Garnet. That that's what he said too. You know, he he met his his guardian angel or one of them, and yeah. uh, and she said, you know, my job is to protect, is to stop you from killing yourself. And he said, oh, you know, well, I've been a conservative, you know, very safe person in my life. Never done, never done anything brash or you know and she and you wouldn't have had much to do and she said let me just show you and she just like your hologram right flick through these um scenarios of how the little boy running in front of the car to get the ball and how so many times she had intervened to stop him killing himself and he was shocked he was like oh my god how many times they save us from killing ourselves it's like like the parent they're still, they're still doing it. Um, one of my uh, sort of um, claims to fame is there's um, certain spirits in the world that don't like what I'm doing. And they have um, decided that it would be a good thing to um, stop me from doing things by ending my life. And I'll give you an example of how the angels um, protect me. And this isn't the only one. I've got several of these stories, but um, several years after, I don't know, three or four years after my near-death experience, I was driving into downtown Cincinnati, which I live very close to, and the off-ramp is a long, curving off-ramp. That, that off-ramp terminates right in downtown. So this big, tall office buildings, um, uh, that you, you you're going you're going you know 35 miles off off a, a super highway onto the soft ramp going 35 40 miles an hour and then the like you're in you're in downtown with all this big office building so the um, point is the intersection is pretty blind you can't see you can see straight forward down the street but you can't see uh, traffic right or left and there's a stoplight there. And as I'm coming towards the stoplight, I'm not, I'm slowing down a little bit from, you know, like 45, 40, 35. Um, Cause I, I used to be a very fast driver. Mm-hmm. Uh, not anymore, but I used to be anyways. And I've got a green light. 
and I'm headed toward this intersection. I'm uh, maybe 30 or 40 feet from entering into the intersection. And I hear this extremely loud voice inside my car yell, stop. And I don't know why I did, but I hit the brake. I mean, like I shoved that brake through the floorboard, you know, I mean, I, I laid rubber, you know, I mean, I laid 20 feet of rubber with my nose just barely into the intersection and a bright red pickup truck with black tinted windows went roaring through the red light coming across on the, on the driver's side right past me just came very close to my front bumper. But the important part of the story coming out of that red pickup truck was this loud, horrible laughter. Like, ha, 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 like that, you know, coming out of the truck. And I knew it was my enemy who had, I, I don't know if you used this term down there, we call it T-boned. He was going to T-bone me on the driver's side in a truck. And it, he would have absolutely killed me. I mean, there's no question about it. I would have been um, gone if I hadn't heard that voice and like pounded that brake pedal right down to the floorboard. And so now I'm sitting at the edge of the intersection and the truck goes roaring off and I can hear that laughter way down, way down the road, really loud. His windows are up. He's got black tin windows and they're all up. And I hear the laughter like so loud. And um, <laughs> at this dead stop and with a green light, you know, and cars are starting to come down and going, <laughs> you know, I'm just, pan I mean, I'm panicked because I realized that I've come within, um, a fraction of a second of being killed. Um, but, 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 you know, I want to back up a bit. This is after yeah. your near death experience, right? Yeah. So you already know what it's like to die. So, um, you know, the fear of death, like, I don't know. You already know that it's pretty cool to die. It's like, right. So surely, I'm not afraid of dying at all. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, okay. But if, but if you took a hammer and started swinging at my head with a hammer, I would definitely duck. Yeah, I wouldn't I know. stand there and go, go ahead. Oh, I know. I get that. I get that. Yeah. yeah but yeah. So, okay. So the angels stop us from killing ourselves. They definitely do. I have to say, I feel like yeah. the angels are the only ones that drive my car. I think I've said this to you before. Somebody gave me a little, um, oh, yeah. a little sort of plastic thing with an angel in it inside it like a statue of a little tiny angel and i've it's been in my car for like 20 years uh -huh. i just i just didn't know what to do with it because i'm like it's just a little thing what yeah. would i do with it and so i put it in my car and it stayed there and it's changed cars and i just call her my parking angel you know she, yeah. she finds me my parks but yeah. i'm pretty sure she drives the car most of the time uh, well <laughs> when i when i decided to go to seminary i chose a seminary that's 70 miles from my house and i commuted there and I worked full time at the university during the day. And then I went to the seminary. I'd usually leave around three or four o'clock in the afternoon and get home around 11 or 12 o'clock at night. It was an hour and a half drive. And as you might imagine, you know, um, you know, coming home at night, I'm exhausted and stuff like that. And I can't tell you the number of nights that I got home from seminary and I would be in my driveway getting ready to open the garage door and I'd go, I have no recollection 
of driving home. Exactly. None whatsoever. And exactly. Exactly. What was? What have I been doing for the past hour? Because <laughs> I'm home. The last I thing I remember, you know, I was leaving seminary and now I'm home, and it's like, I mean, that, I mean, that once again I attribute that to the angels because. Um, how could I not remember anything that's happened? Oh, hi, handsome. This is my angel. What's, what's his name? Uh, oh, he's got a couple of names. Um, Denzel, though he was my neighbours and the neighbour gave him to me and they called him after a black rapper. Yeah, black rapper, Drake. Yo, yo, yo. And, um, and then they gave me his papers and on the paper it said Marley, so I don't know, he's got a few names. But, um, yeah, I know, they, they totally get uh, a hold of the vehicle. So, they, um... They totally drive your car. So, yeah, after um, my um, surgery in Paris, which mm. was, of course, I had the surgery after my near-death experience, so they had the surgery. And when I awoke, I was in a, um, a recovery area, surgical recovery area. And I was all alone in that room. And it was dark. And... The room got very, very bright. Mm -hmm. Like a lot of, I wasn't aware of anybody turning on the lights, but it was like all of a sudden lots and lots of lights were turning. The room was just filled with light. And I was awake and conscious. And this beautiful young man came in. And I, I guess that he was in his um, mid or late 20s. He was blonde, maybe about 5'10 mm, or 5'11" um clean shaven wearing um a v-neck uh pale green hospital uh top with short sleeves and um the uh, baggy hospital pants and sneakers um i can still remember his face he was, he was strikingly handsome mm. and he came in and he said hi i'm uh dr so-and-so and, -so and I, I did not recall what he said his name was but anyways and he said, I've just come in to check on you. And I said, oh, that's nice of you. Um, how am I doing? And he said, oh, you're doing fine. He said, you're going to make it. And I said, well, I don't feel too good. And um, he said, what's the matter? I, feel, I said, I feel like a truck's run over me. And he said, well, you had major surgery and, you know, it's a long operation and you're going to be really sore for quite a while, but you're going you're gonna to be okay. You're going to recover from all this. And um, I said, well, it's really nice of you to be here. I said, but. Um, you speak perfect English. And he said, well, thank you. And I said, uh, have you been to the U.S.? And he said, oh, yeah, I studied in the U.S. for quite a number of years. And I said, well, you're, you, you, you speak English without any accent. Are you French? And he said, oh, French, many, many, many things, many, many things. And I said, do you speak a lot of different languages? And he said, yes, I speak many languages. And I said, well, that's really impressive. I said, you're so young to have all that experience. And he said, oh, my looks are deceiving. I'm much older than I look. <laughs> and I said, I said, well, you look like you're in your 20s. And he laughed and he said, oh, no. Um, he said, I've been around a long time. Aww. And I said, where else have you been besides the U.S.? And he said, Mm, much of the world, much of the world. And I said, wow, you've, you've had quite a 
quite a life for as young as you are, because I'm still convinced that he's in his 20s, you know. And uh, I said, well, it's been really nice to meet you. And um, when will you be back? And he said, he said, well, I'm going to be around you, but um, we won't be visiting anymore. And I said, well, what, do you, what do you mean you're going to be around? He said, I'm, I'm going to watch over you, but you won't see me again. And I said, if you're going to be around, why don't you just come by and say hello? I said, I've enjoyed meeting you. And he said, I'm going to, I'll be with you. And I said, well, why, why won't I see you? And he said, um, it's just not suitable at this time. He said, but just don't, just remember that I'm, I'm around. I'll be taking care of you. I'm going to make sure you're going to be okay. <laughs> so you're okay, but I hope you come back and visit me. And he said, well, remember, um, I'm, I'm around. I'm with you. Mm. And he left. Okay, so he walks out of this empty room, this recovery area, and within a minute, the nurse comes into the room. And I said to the nurse, what's the name of the doctor that was just in here? And she said, there was no doctor in here. And I said, no, no. And I described him to her, you know, mm -hmm. despite this appearance. And she said, there has been no one in this room. And I said, there was a doctor in this room just before you came in. You had to have seen him. And she said, my desk is outside the door to this room. No one has been in this room. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I said, well, you're wrong because I just saw him and I talked to him. And she said, it's not possible. Um, I've been sitting at my desk. You know what fascinates me about this too is that, um, you know, even if she did come into the room, she possibly would not have seen him, only you were perceiving him. And, you know, this is something that Garnet said too with her, his, his spirit guide or, or angel, whatever you want to call no. it, uh, that when he appeared to him physically, he even touched him, you know, he was touching him, he was holding him. So he had all these physical senses engaged. Touch, smell, remember I said he smelled like a dead fish, smell, sight, hearing, but he said that nobody else could see him. So this is something that fascinates me that they, yeah. can, they can perceive as, so they can engage all our physical senses so that we perceive a physical being and, and other people aren't perceiving that other physical being, that vibrational, like it's just fascinating to me how they do that. So I guess we'll I have some more I had some more interactions with this. Oh you did doctor. that yeah, yeah, yeah. So um they took me out of the recovery area and put me back in the room that I'd been in when I first came into the hospital and uh several days went by and I was aware that um I was going south, I was going bad. I was very aware of that. And um they took me off all of my medicines and everything like that and told me I was doing fine and I realized that um, I was not getting the care that I needed. I didn't know what was going wrong. Um, later on I found out that um, I was developing peritonitis which means my whole abdominal cavity was becoming infected and um, mm -hmm. can be quite fatal if it's not treated and they were um, just not paying any attention to any of that. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, so I'm in the room. This is um, five days after the surgery. And I said aloud, if anybody's listening, now I'm in an empty room, okay? Mm-hmm. I said, if anybody's listening, I'm going to die here. And I don't want to die here. I've got stuff to do. Mm-hmm. And an audible voice, not not in my head, not not mm-hmm. a suggestion, an audible voice said, mm-hmm. um, when your wife comes to the hospital, tell her to buy tickets home for Monday. And you need to fly home on Monday morning. Mm. And I said to the voice, um, how can we buy tickets? We we're out of money. Um, we, we, we were supposed to have left Europe the, mm. the day after I, so we were, we were down to like a few dollars and now my wife had used up the remaining money staying at the hotel and taking taxis and all that stuff. So mm-hmm. she, she was just about broke. Mm. Um, and I didn't, I didn't have, I didn't have a wallet or pants or a shirt or anything. I mean, I'm in a hospital, you know, with nothing. And, uh, the voice said, well, I'll be taken care of. Just believe. Mm. And I said, just believe. And the voice said, believe. So I said, oh, crap. (laughs) I'll try. And so my wife arrived at that day at the hospital. Now, the doctors had told her that I'm going to be there three or four weeks, you know, to recover from the surgery. And I'm, and I'm getting a very clear sense that I'm not going to recover. I'm going to, you know, not make it. And she walked in the room. My wife then was an attorney. She's still a, my ex-wife now. She's, she's a very powerful, successful attorney, very strong will. Mm-hmm. She walked into the room. And I said, you need to go buy plane tickets home. We have to go home Monday morning. And she looked at me and she said, yes, dear. I'll go get the tickets. Now, she was under a spell, under a compulsion. This is totally not typical of her. I mean, it's crazy. You know, when I asked her later, why did you do that? She, she always said, I don't know. She mm-hmm. said, I... I, I I had no control over anything because I said, you know, it's insane for you to go get tickets and we didn't have any money and stuff. So she, what she did, and I'm going to give you the details because this is like how the angels work. Okay. Um, She goes to the lobby in the hospital, gets on a payphone, makes a collect call to her parents in Iowa city, Iowa Mm -hmm. tells them we need a lot of money because we got to buy tickets to fly home. And they said, Give us your phone number. We'll call back as soon as we figure out how to send you the money. They called their local bank. Their banker had just returned from a trip to Paris where they had had an emergency, and he had to um, get his bank to wire him some money. So he said, I know exactly what to do. Tell your daughter that there will be $2,000 at such and such a bank at this address. Like now, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to um, do a money wire. 
and it's it's there as soon as they get off the phone the money will be there tell her to go get the money they call her back give her the message and the information she walks into the room she said i'm going to go get the tickets now i'll be back in a couple hours leaves the hotel gets in a taxi goes to the bank picks up the money with no problem um goes to a TWA office, buy, buys two business class tickets, hmm. which was like $1,800 at that time, um, for us to fly home, because she knew I, I needed to recline, and she knew Coach wasn't going to do the job, right? Mm-hmm, you know? mm-hmm. so she gets business class, and on, I'm going to get this straight, on um, s- Saturday, which was like two days away, well, let me say, on Friday, I couldn't get out of bed. I was so sick. Mm-hmm. I mean, I was really, really going bad. Just pouring sweat all the time, fever. Um, the peritonitis is really um, starting to take off. Mm-hmm. Um, she comes um, Saturday. I said, how am I going to go home? I can't even walk now. I can't get out of bed. How am I going to get home? My wife bought me these tickets, and we borrowed $2,000 from her parents. And now we can't use those. We're going to lose those tickets. We'd already lost our tickets home because of the accident. Now we're going to lose this. And how are we going to repay them? We don't have the money. And, like, it's all a big disaster. And you told me to believe. And, like, all you've done is you've made everything much worse. And, like, why did you do this to me? And the voice said, Believe. You're going to be fine. And it was that young doctor. And so I said, I'm trying, but it's not working for me. And Sunday morning, a nurse came into the room, and she said, how are you today? And I said, I need some towels, I need some soap, and I need a pan. Now, in adjacent to our room was a toilet and a sink, no shower and no tub just this toilet and a sink, a little tiny closet. I got out of bed. I washed my hair and my entire body with a washcloth and a pan of water and a bar of soap, brushed my teeth and shaved. My wife on Saturday had brought me the clothes that I had requested. And my, when my wife showed up Sunday, um, I was sitting in a chair, all spiffed up and clean um, and smelling good and um, all dressed. And I said, let's go. So we proceeded to walk out of the hospital. When I got into the hallway, a nurse came running up and like, Monsieur Stone, kiss que vous faites? You know, and she's like freaking out because like, you know, I'm walking out, you know, like, you know, I'm supposed to be in bed. And she said, I'm going to get the doctor. I said, go ahead, get the doctor. So she goes and gets a doctor who I've never seen before. And he comes up to me and he said, you go back to your room and get in bed. You know, you know, you're not discharged yet. And I said, no, you're wrong. I am discharged. It's your mistake. I'm supposed to go home today. I said, um, you can check the paper, paperwork. I'm, I'm free to go. And he goes, oh, excuse me. I'm sorry. Go ahead. You know, it's like, but you, but did you, were you just making that up or? Yeah, yeah, I was just, I just, I mean, I'm I'm trying to go into the belief mode here. Yeah, okay, you're going into the belief mode. I know, the way way they orchestrate the details, it's amazing. Yeah, that's what, that's why I'm telling this whole story because, I mean, it's like, 
it's it's unbelievable. So we we walk out of the um, hospital, get in a taxi, go back to the hotel. I go back to the hotel. I'm not feeling too. I'm you know all this exercises. I'm starting to not feel so hot. So we go to bed, and I just lay in bed and went to sleep that night. In the morning, we took a, a taxi to De Gaulle Airport. My um, told my wife. I said I'm I'm getting pretty weak. So she wheeled me through in a wheelchair. Yeah. And um, we flew. Uh, from De Gaulle at eight o'clock in the morning to um, New York, um, landed at JFK International, big, huge um, terminal with thousands of people coming and going, big international terminal. I'm in a wheelchair and I'm starting to uh, go south. And we've got a four hour layover before our flight home to Cincinnati. And I'm sitting in this wheelchair and the hours are going by and I'm starting to go bad and I'm getting scared. And so I told my wife to push me to the men's room and I went into the men's room and I washed my face because I was, I'm starting to pour sweat and stink and all that stuff. And um, I washed my face and I'm in the men's room and I said, okay, you've gotten me this far, but you could have get me home. I want to go home now. Please get me home. And all of a sudden, like, boom, I'm good to go. You know, I'm okay. Come out. We get on a plane, come home. Um, I come home. We go. Uh, my wife takes me to the local hospital. My um, family doctor, who is a great old family doctor guy, Doctor Grover. He um, he's at the hospital. He'd been forewarned, and he's there to meet me. Mm. He examined me. Oh, it's hard for me to get through this. And he says to me. I mean, I've got two collapsed lungs, double pneumonia, extreme peritonitis. My liver functions are like off the charts. You know, I mean, I mean, and he says to me, he said, you're really, really sick. And I don't know how you made it home. And I looked at him and I started to say angels. And I thought, I don't want him to think I'm crazy. I said, I've got some really strong friends who have helped me home and he said well you must because I don't know how you got here and then at that moment I realized how am I going to tell people about the angels because from that day on mm -hmm. the angels visited me every day sometimes several times a day in the hospital I was there for um, five weeks very very sick so and how they did would they visit, visit me in your mind or did they show up physically? No, no, physically. Really? Sometimes they would appear full of light and sometimes they'd appear as people and they just kept coming. And I mean, I knew they were the angels because they would just come and go and they would never, ever come when there were other people in the room and they would always leave the minute someone else started to come into the room. Mm. And it drove me crazy because people would come into the room and I would say, if you had been here one second earlier, you would have seen the most beautiful angel. You wouldn't have believed how beautiful those angels are. And the people, of course, would laugh at me, and I knew that they thought I was nuts. And I'd say, no, 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 I'm not crazy. I'm not making this stuff up. I was wide awake. It's not a dream. It's real. Angels are real. And then the other thing that started to happen was is that I could start to see the spirits around other people. Yeah. And I wasn't willing this. I wasn't seeking it it just started happening mm -hmm. so people would come in the room and i would see like their good spirits and then their bad spirits and um some people were in in 
spiritually in good shape, you know, and the good spirits were protecting them and they were dominant and inside and other people were um, having a rough time of it. And um, there was a battle going on around them between the good and the bad spirits. And I would say to them, I'd say, you know, I, I'd say, I know that there's a lot of conflict and trouble in your life. And if you would ask your angels to help you, mm -hmm. if you would ask God to help you, they would resolve those conflicts and you could find a way out of those messes. And people would go like, you don't know what you're talking about. You know, you're crazy and stuff like that. But I want to I wanna say something because I've been quiet. <laughs> I wanted to get the story out. Okay, so the question begs, if the angels were helping you so much, why didn't they just heal you? Why did they put you through so much pain and sickness? And if they can manipulate, well, if they can organize energy in such a way that they can drive cars and make people think things and, you know, they can do anything. They can organize energy as everything's just energy. Why didn't they heal you? I mean, I personally, I'd, I'd asked Jesus when he told me that I had to come back. I said, am I going to um, be sick when I get back? And he said, yeah, you're going to be really sick and you're going to suffer a lot. Mm -hmm. And I said, is that really, <laughs> I said, is that really necessary? Because I don't really want to do that. Yep. And he's, you've got lots and lots of things to learn. And he said, it's going to be an opportunity for you to discover a lot of things and to grow. And I don't wish pain and suffering on anyone, including myself, mm. but I did more growing mm -hmm. and more learning and more understanding um, during those, those days in the hospital than any other time in my life other than my near-death experience. And I look back and I, and I have genuinely thanked God for that. I've also thanked God with the, if I could learn without the pain and the suffering yeah you know in the future i would be more than happy to do that so i'm you know i'm really will, willing to learn without the without the, the pain and the suffering but i thank you for that pain and suffering because i never would have yeah. and one of the things that um i mean i learned so many things from all that one of the things i learned um was to just um give it all give everything up to god mm -hmm. and um one of the things i learned was um real empathy for empathy. Um, both the patients in the hospital and the hospital staff. And as a later on in life, when I became a pastor, I've spent a, I've spent a lot of time and do spend a lot of time in hospitals. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that I'm really good at is like, I totally get what it's like to be in a hospital. And like, I love all those people and I relate to them in a way that I never would have been able to. So it was all like this wonderful training for a career of being a hospital visitor guy trying to bring, bring people a little bit of comfort and patience and love. And um, so I got, I got a little graduate course in what it's like. Um, and, but the most important exactly. thing was like to give my, my whole life up to God, which um, is what I did because I didn't have a life. So I just, okay, God, whatever you want, I want to I wanna know what that is and I want to try and do it and follow it. And, and what, it, what it was, what God, I mean, God never told me, be a pastor or do this. God, I mean, what yeah. it was, was just love, just love the people. Just love and them. loving the, the people that came by the room. So um, it got to the point, you know, when the cleaning lady would come in in the room, I immediately wanted to engage her in conversation. And they were, they were the most friendly people of all the cleaning people, you know, yeah. et cetera. Yeah.
Oh, there's so many things. There's so many things to say, Howard. So as you're telling the story about the pain and the, and the, and the, and the synchro destiny, the synchronicities, the things that are miraculously happened, people handing over money and people, you know, had you not been in that pain and that suffering, you know, that story wouldn't have made sense. If you were able to just do it all yourself, you know, you wouldn't have seen, you wouldn't have seen how the angels orchestrate the details and had you been capable of doing orchestrating the details yourself. So, so the pain and the suffering had so much, uh, so many gifts, so many gifts. It gave you empathy. It gave you, it gave you lessons. It, it, it allowed you to see how life is orchestrating to help you. Even though you're in this terrible circumstance, people keep saying, you know, if, if the angels are that powerful, why don't they just fix everything and everything's rosy? But um, if everything was rosy, we wouldn't no. learn anything, would we? Well, they're in it for the long term. They're in it for the long term. They want us to learn. Yeah. They want us to, want us to change, to, to be more loving and more caring. And, um, you know, that, you know they, they don't want to turn us into uh, spoiled brats. You know, my mom made that mistake plenty, you know. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Look, even as a parent, I was having, as I was telling you, I was having this discussion with my daughter this morning before you came on. You know, unconditional love is letting people fall over and feel the pain of the hurt without mm-hmm. leaving without needing to fix it for them all the time because yeah. when you let people live their life and, and you know you as a mother i can sat back i can say my doors are open you can live here i can support you i can feed you i can do all the things a mother can do but i can't fix your life that's up to you right. you right. know like and so you the pains and the hurts that you're going through are all a part as I was saying to you this morning, you know, I was saying that everything I went through was a gift to the death of yeah. my mother and my father beating me up and having no money and going through illness. And Oh my God, you know, I've done the gamut. I've run the gamut, yeah. run the race. And yeah. all of it was a gift. All of it yeah. was a gift. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Now I want to ask you this question. There were so many other things I wanted to say during that story, but it was such an amazing story. So uh, we've been talking forever and we probably have to finish in a minute, but, um, a couple of people have said this in the last couple of years, not many. And I think it's really um, a negative thought. You know, my vernacular is different to yours. You say you see negative spirits around people. I see negative thoughts, you know, and, and thoughts have their own life. And they can like, you can feed on yeah. negative thoughts or you can feed on positive thoughts and they can feed on you. But I don't call them spirits. Like I don't give them an identity and I don't give them a, a form. I just call them thoughts. and. Uh, and I see yeah. negative and positive thoughts around people, like I could, like you see negative spirits or positive. So um, one of the thoughts that's out there is that angels, you know, don't trust the angels because demons can appear as a beautiful angel and then feed off your energy. So one of my clients said, I don't believe in the angels because I've been told that angels feed off our energy. So what would the angel say about that nice little thought? Well, frankly, I think that's um, really, really terrible and unfortunate because what um, there is a struggle within us, without us, and around us between um, good and evil, right and wrong, mm-hmm. um, love and hate, you know, mm-hmm. life and death. Um, 
and I know people like to say there is no such thing, but we, we are here to make choices in our life. Mm-hmm. And what God wants us to do is to be wonderful and loving and beautiful creatures. Um, and unfortunately, that doesn't always um, um, happen for a lot of people. Yeah. yeah. And it makes God very sad because he wants everybody to be successful. He wants everybody to be happy. He wants everybody to be loved. He wants everybody to go to heaven. That's God's will. And um, people alienate themselves from what's good and what's helpful. The angels want us. I mean, they told me this emphatically. They want us to rely upon them. They want us to ask them for help. And so how really rotten and deceitful is it to tell people don't trust the angels because they could be evil. They feed the the the, the statement was they feed off our energy, and I just thought, oh my God, who is it's putting quite, that? It's, it's just the opposite. It's so they're the ones with the energy. Yeah, they're the you ones know, with the energy. Like, yeah, they are like, energy. Yeah. Like let me let me let me tell you how I prepare for things. Mm-hmm. Okay, I mean this is an energy story. Um, apart, apart from buying new blue jeans. Yeah. Uh, when I when I give a talk, whether it's like a one on one like this or whether it's um you know, I've spoken to um crowds with several thousand people and yeah. you know, and that can be pretty intimidating. Yeah. Um the way that I prepare for it is I say, I have nothing to say, mm-hmm. I have nothing to give. God, there's a lot of people out here that need to know your love and to feel your love and experience your love. And I don't know why you've put me in this place to be your ambassador, but I'm, I showed up, I'm willing. Um, and I got, and I have to be me. I can't be anything but me. If you use me, mm-hmm. I'm here to use, but I'm telling you, I have nothing prepared and I have nothing to give, but you have everything to give. So go ahead. Um, use me. And that's how, that's my preparation. And um, I'll tell you one, this is kind of, it, this is from the angels tangentially. My best friend was a Roman Catholic priest. His name was Father Jim Willig. And he was in the area pretty famous because he was so charismatic and he was the most authentic, wonderful, honest, um, great sense of humor. I mean, he, he would get the whole church during mass to just roar with laughter. And almost all of his jokes were self-depreciating. He was just an amazing guy. Well, anyways, he and I became best friends. And he got cancer, um, two-year struggle, and he died. Uh-huh. And the Catholic Church asked me to give the sermon for okay. this very famous priest. Okay. And there were thousands of people at the funeral, and like, wow. quite unusual for a non-Catholic to be yes. asked to give the totally. sermon. Totally. Totally. Yep. So the yep. week before, I said to God privately in my prayers, I said, I don't know what to say about Jim because I loved him and he was the most beautiful man I've ever known and I miss him and that's all I have to say. And I need to say something inspiring because there's people coming to this thing all everybody's got a broken heart and I'm supposed to like somehow lift up the faith and I, and I, I don't, I, I've gotten, I've got nothing. 
Yeah. And God said to me, when it's time, you'll know what to say. Yeah. So every day I'm saying to I'm ready. I got pen. I got paper. I got, I got a quiet office. I'm, I'm ready to start writing down my notes. And God said, it's not time yet. It'll be time. So anyways, it finally comes to the day of the funeral. It's in the evening. The church is so packed. They've set up a closed circuit TV in another building for the overflow of the crowd. I mean, there's a thousand people in this church and there's a thousand people watching this whole service on closed circuit TV. And it's like, I don't know, six or eight, Roman Catholic priests and me, a Protestant minister up there on the dais. And I, I don't have any role other than to do the sermon. And it finally comes time. It's just about time for me to do the sermon. I said, I said, okay, God, I told you all I'm going to say is I loved him and I miss him and I'm yep. going to cry. Yep. And God said, almost ready. We're almost ready for you. Just go up there. So I go up to the thing, and I spoke for over half an hour. Yep. I have no idea what I said. Yep. I have no memory of being there. Mm -hmm. I mean, the only thing I remember was the whole, the whole church standing up and cheering like at a football game. And when I turned around from the put, and I didn't know why, I honestly, I didn't know why they were cheering. And when I turned around from the front, all the priests came up to me and said, that was the most beautiful, wonderful thing we've ever heard. And I turned to one of them and I said, do you know what I said? <laughs> I got to get my. Because I didn't have a clue. <laughs> and my, my point is, is that the angels were there speaking i mean i i'm willing i'm saying i'm 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 here i'm well i'm you know i'm showed up i'm willing do your thing and they and they just took over and they did it and whatever it was was really great and i found out later that um the uh, um catholic church had tape recorded that and we're selling um tapes do you have a copy story. of it no because people have offered to give it to me and uh -huh. i I don't want to hear it. Why? Because I, can't, because I can't take credit for it because it was, it was a gift. Yeah, but I can't take credit from half the stuff that comes out of my mouth. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, it, us new age hippies call it channeling. You know, that's a word that it's... Yeah, um, yeah it's channeling your higher self or your angels or your God presence or your guides. I mean, there's so many labels and they're only labels. Yeah. Some people say God spoke yeah. through me. Some people say I'm channeling aliens. Some people say the angels are speaking through me. I mean, they're just words. They're just labels for the same thing, really. It's just yeah. uh, just get the ego mind out of the way so that the higher mind can just funnel yeah. through because I'm sure the angels told you that when you're not in your physical body and you're not operating in a linear yeah. mind, you are one with them. You know, you're right, that right. same energy. You are, right. yeah, that's, that's who you are. You I, are that I so, so desire to be that way more and more all the time. Well, <laughs> yeah, I guess the journey in life is just to, to set aside the ego mind, to just place it aside so that more of that can, yeah. can, can be, can, we can be more of that. But I no. don't think that just like the pain and the suffering gives us the lessons, the ego mind, you know, gives us the richness of the uh, experience 
of what it is to be a third dimensional or physical or in this dimension or in this realm or in this world. And from that perspective, that the limitations that we place upon ourselves are seen as a, as a, as a great ride, like being on a roller coaster, right. terrifying and exhilarating at the same time. <laughs> yeah. 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 Oh, so many stories, Howard, so many beautiful angel stories. But how would you distinct, distinguish um, another question? So many questions came up when you were talking. How would you distinguish angels from spirit guides? A question that a lot of people ask. You hmm. seem to call them all the angels. Yeah, just for lack of a better term. I just, you know, you know the word angel literally means a messenger of God. Mm -hmm. um, and angels can be people i mean your your friends can be like an angel um yeah i mean real people can be angels and so it it's a very vague term and i know that there's okay. a class of beings that were created that have never been physical um, physical and there's people that go to heaven and then take on roles like angels so it's um, right. lots and lots of possibilities um yeah and, and you'd call them God. Because I, I know that when I spoke to Lorna, I'd love to connect you with Lorna Byrne too. I've told you about her before. The angel lady, she sees them with yeah. her. She sees them everywhere, right? And, and she was diagnosed being, um, well, retarded was the name they gave her when she was little because yeah. she was completely and utterly dyslexic and couldn't learn to read or write. But so they kind of ignored her. She's in her 60s now. So back in her generation, they kind of ignored her and the only people she spoke to were the angels, but she would, she would perceive them as you perceive the man in the hospital yeah. Yeah. everywhere all the time and still does. Yeah. But she said that, you know, and they've taught her many things, that the angelic realm is different to the human realm or to the spiritual beings that we are who have human experiences because they don't, she said, have a soul. And um, I tried to sort of work that out in my head because, you know, yeah. what does the word soul mean? It's, again, yeah. just another label for something we don't really understand. Right. Um, but they don't incarnate into lives, uh, physical lives. They stay as pure positive energy, although they can, you know, create a body like you're a doctor yeah. in the room, but they don't have these um, physical lives with these limited minds. Right. And then I saw on the line on the YouTube the other day a woman that was being regressed, and she um, she said she was an angel that was having her first physical human life, and that she had been imprinted with huh. memories of other experiences and lives, so that she could have a physical human life. And I'm thinking, I guess anything's possible i don't know there are just maybe no rules to the game there's anything anything is possible yeah there's no rules yeah 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 we're trying to work it all out from this human perspective we can get so right. confused yeah yeah but so a lot of um reverends and pastors and religious people of the cloth usually men well only men because the religion kind of doesn't really let the women in in many different religions they they have a faith in god but they don't have the experiences that you've had like they don't have angels showing up physically in their room or or, or having audi audible voices talking to them or lights in their room where they perceive with their through their physical eyes 
I bet you've shared a lot of these stories with your fellow clergy. Have they been quite astounded by your experiences? Well, what I, what I learned pretty early was some people are receptive and some people are hostile. So I, I have learned um, the hard way, the very hard <laughs> way. Um, I only share um, these kinds of experiences with people that would be receptive because I found out that um, I, I, you know, being, being put down and mocked and told you're crazy is not really that much fun for me. I try to avoid that as much as possible. And well, I've, had, I've had enough of that. I don't need much more. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. I try to be discreet about who I speak to. Even amongst your fellow clergy, your fellow religious, spiritual yeah, some, some, some are really, you know, some, yeah, some are open to this stuff and have had experiences of their own, and so does yeah. others are absolutely hostile to it. Yeah, fascinating, fascinating. Okay, one more question before we go, because we've been going now for like nearly two hours. Um, I think I, I haven't got my computer open, but the other computer. There were a lot of. Um, there was some young, beautiful young man who had uh, interviewed you before my show who had been on my show and he was disgusted that I was talking about new age concepts to a man who was a Christian. And there's like this, a lot of this separation amongst the religious people that there's like Christians and then there's new age people and all the new age people are, um, they're all demons. Again, these are just labels. I don't see anybody as spiritual, new age, Hindu, Buddhist. I don't see anybody inside their label. I just see us all as souls having a human life experience, doing the best we can. (laughs) Yeah, I think, um, you know, I admire people that are um, seeking God, seeking love, seeking truth, as opposed to people that are um, doing quite the opposite, you know, and we do have people in this world that are doing everything they can to promote division and hate and, uh, you know, the demeaning of women and people of other races and stuff like that. So um, I'm all for people that are seeking, you know, um, the line that I like to use, which I think handles it beautifully, was Mother Teresa was asked um, when she was in India, she said, where in India only 3% of the population is Christian. And the rest are, you know, predominantly Hindu and then Muslim and Sikhs. Yeah, exactly. Uh, mm. She said, how do you feel about all the other religions in India? And Mother Teresa said, and I quote, I love all religions, but I love my own the best. Mm-hmm. And so I'm going to stand on the mighty shoulders of Mother Teresa and say, I love all religions, but I love my own the best. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so in religions, you would say, like, you would include the new age. I mean, I don't even see myself as part of a label that calls it the yeah. new age. Yeah. I really don't. But I guess it, it, that if somebody had to explain who or what I am, I guess I would be a part of the new age. But, yeah. you know, I love the label, the new age, because, you know, guess what? We live in a new age. Yeah, right. right. We, t- we totally live in a new age. We, we have technology that's changing the world. We have some beliefs that are changing the world. And, um, and none of it's tied up with the old age. It's not tied up in religion and it's not tied up in the dogma of the old age. And so I like the label, the new age, but a lot of people vilify it as some cult or sect or um, dogma, again, some sort of organized dogma. I think, yeah, I think the critical word was used is like vilifying other people. Like um, 
if we have anything to offer people by our love of God, it's certainly not vilifying other people that are seeking God. It would be like seeking connection with them. And um, a story that I like to tell, um, my wife and I were in China. Um, we were there for a month. We were in Beijing, staying at a, a really cool little uh, two-story um, local hotel. And there was this woman whose spirit I was like, I fell in love with her spirit. And yeah. With my wife, I was not interested in having relations. Yeah, I, with her. I, I fall in love every day. I know yeah. what you mean. Yeah. And, um, I went up to her and I said, you know, I, I'd like to talk to you about your beliefs. And she said, well, I'm a Buddhist. And I said, well, I'm a Christian. You know, tell yeah. me more. And so she talked. And I know she was a little bit defensive, waiting, waiting for the hammer to come down on, you know, like, you know. And I said, you know what? I mean, what she told me was so beautiful and so loving and so good. I said, no, I think you're in a perfect place. I, the last thing I would want to do would be to change you or to tell you to do anything other than what you're doing. I said, you know, I really admire you. You know, keep, keep on doing what you're doing because you, you are, you know, in, in a perfect place. And um, I've told that story a couple of times and people, people said, oh, you, what do you mean? You know, you should have like proselytized her. I said, no, she she was already there. I thought she was probably more advanced than I was. I don't know, you know. Mm. Um, you know, there's, or let me just say this. Um, one of the things that I've really kind of realized is very simplistic, but it's, it's true for me. Mm -hmm. There's people that love God, and there's people that love their religion. I love people that love God, and we always get along, and we have no problems no matter what their background is. And oftentimes when I meet people that love their religion, all of a sudden there's all these barriers and obstacles and, um, you know, they want to change me. They want to convince me that they're right and I'm wrong. And it's like, whoa, 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 whoa. Hold your horses. Hold your horses. You know, let's go into the, let's go into the love territory and get off the, um, you know, these little doctrinal differences that you think divide us. They don't divide us. You know, you know what I do? Uh, and this isn't not even me. When people ask me if I'm Catholic, I say, yeah. If people ask me if I'm Buddhist, I say, yeah. If yeah. they ask me if I'm Hindu, I say, yeah. Mm. And I said, how what can you say that? We know that you're a, a reverend. What if they ask what? you if, if you're an atheist? That that I would not agree with. <laughs> I want to tell you. I, yeah, I would. That one. That one. I can't. I want to tell you a quick story. I. I but I love atheists. I love atheists. When I moved into this, I other, you know that you know the meetup meetup website. So anyway, maybe you don't. So meetup is a website where you put your location and your interests in, and it sends you people that meet up with those similar interests. And so. Uh, most of the interests were spiritual interests and, you know, and new age interests, healing and energy work and all that sort of stuff. But I put in that uh, social and I went to a social meetup at breakfast thinking that I was going to be amongst people that really didn't have my caliber of conversation because yeah. uh, I like to talk about what we're talking about. And, yeah. um, and then, of course, as life would have it or I could say I attracted, I sat next to this beautiful man who was working with children and working in detention centers with uh, children and teaching them music 
and loving them. He was one of the most incredible, beautiful, healing, gorgeous men, an absolute atheist. And I tried to engage him in some sort of conversation around spiritual energy, uh, spiritual spirituality, and he would not, he would not have a bar of it. He just would not go there. But his work was amazing, worked in prisons and worked with children and, and, um, and children that are in detention. Um, you know, the immigrants that come here that get locked up, we do yeah. that in Australia. I don't know why we do that. And then these poor people live in these like prisons while, they're, while the government decides whether they're going to keep them or send them home or anyway, it's terrible. And he would go in and he would teach them music and he would love them. And he was just such a loving, caring, beautiful man, absolute atheist. Absolute, I did not want to have a conversation about new age, spirituality, blizzard of nothing. Couldn't go there. It was really fascinating. Yeah, so I would say... You know, he, there's something in his background. He was living these... Background. Living you know, spirit, spiritual principles of oneness and connection and service and yet not having that conversation in any way, shape of, or form. Oh, that, that was his heart. Yeah. His heart was there, but his mind had been traumatized somewhere in the past about religion, and it, it yeah. just, he had built this huge defensive mechanism against yep. it. Yep, yeah, yeah, amazing. Anyway, it, it takes all types to make this beautiful, diverse, delicious yeah. world, and, yeah. and such a blessing. It's been such a blessing to talk with you and the angels this morning. Oh, the angels have been. Likewise. Uh, we could talk angel stories all day. So nobody jumped on, so um, that's okay. We didn't get that organised. But uh, I'm going to invite you back again next year. Great. I just have to work out a date with um, and I'll and I'll have a group of people to talk to, my Inner Sanctum group. So we do these webinars where I gather a group of people and we get to hear your stories, swap stories, talk, you know, have a lovely time. And, Great. Uh, so next Look year... I'd love to invite you back. Thank you. Okay. Blessings and peace to you. Namaste. <laughs> <laughs> Namaste. Blessings and thank you again. Thank you. What can I say about that one? <laughs> Excuse me. That one went for about two hours, but oh, wow. Isn't how it is beautiful. He has so many stories, so many beautiful stories and, we were just chatting after I finished the recording, as we do, and uh, I was saying I want to bring him down to Australia one day and the angels are going to help me do that because the angels are helping me find some financial uh, abundance. And, uh, yeah, they told me that um, I said, ooh, maybe I could help Howard, you know, find some financial abundance. And they said, no, he won't get what you're doing, but you can find it and then you can help him that way. So I said, all right, that's the plan. So maybe in a couple of years. We'll get Howard down under and do some talks and talk more angels, have a whole night with Howard and the angels and all sorts of things. That'll be fun. Thanks again for listening. If you stayed all the way to the end, like two hours. And uh, yeah, if you want to meet Howard, he's coming into the inner sanctum next year, which is two hours of us talking. Uh, we, we get to share. He's going to share his stories. I didn't do much talking today. There was so much I could have said because he's just so full of stories. So I just let him talk. But in the inner sanctum, we all get to share, ask him questions, but share our stories and share our wisdom. It's, it's really not about one teacher teaching the others. It's about teachers or people with experiences or just people seekers coming together 
to share their love and share stories and learn from each other. And uh, remember, I call my sessions reminders from home. Because all of us know much of what we talk about. Well, we all know from our soul's perspective or our higher self or our angelic perspective or whatever you want to call it. But the little ego, linear ego mind needs to be reminded. So my sessions are called Reminders from Home. So in the inner sanctum, that's what we do. We're all reminding each other the path back home, back home in here, not necessarily outside of ourselves, but to live heaven on earth, to be in heaven while living on earth. So join us if you feel that you want to come in and um, now you get to meet some of the amazing people that I speak with on the show. Thanks for listening. Much love to you all. Blessings. Bye for now. Thanks so much for joining us for another enlightened conversation on Accentuate the Positive. If you would like spiritual guidance from my guides, Blissful Beings, go to karenswain.com for a reading or to listen to more enlightened thought leaders share their wisdom. Go to the listen page on karenswain.com and choose who you want to listen to. All the podcasts are also available on iTunes. Remember to check us out on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Pinterest, you name it, we're there. Until next time, bye for now. If you feel like that's what you want to do.